Thank you for joining us in our Luke series, the most important story ever told. We've been teaching through uh, the gospel of Luke, and today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 16. Got your Bibles, you can float there. Uh, Luke chapter 16 is where we're going to land. And Jesus has been sharing like a lot of different stories and parables along the way. By the time we get to 15, where he rebukes the religious leaders of that day because of how hard their hearts were toward God, how cruel they were toward others. By the time you get to 16, follow me, follow me, he pulls back the throttle big time and it's about to become intense. And so Luke chapter 16 is packaged with some intense stuff that Jesus is, uh, is sharing with the disciples and the religious folk of that day. So I'm just going to go on and tell you right now, if I was you, I, I would Buckle up pretty good right now because this is going to be an aggressive kind of ride. But part of the heart in teaching through books of the Bible is not allocarding, not cutting and pasting, not sugarcoating, not minimizing, is standing firm on the Word of God. And today, uh, I, I just pray for you. I pray for every person in this room, those watching online. I pray that your heart is so prepared to hear from God and allow the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about the necessary uh, transforming work that the Lord wants to do in your life today. That's my prayer for you in this room. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you overwhelm us right now through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that your, your presence, your power, and the peace of Christ would saturate this room right now, every person in this room, that they would eliminate any distraction and they would anticipate hearing from you. Those watching online, Father, would they lean in and anticipate hearing from you? Lord, as David prayed with the words of my mouth and the meditations even of my heart, would they be pleasing to you right now, Lord? I pray that whatever you desire to do in this room that I or no one else would seek to interfere with it. We rebuke even, Lord, all of the demonic powers of hell that would try to come against what you want to do right now. And we claim the shed blood of Jesus. There's power in the blood and we claim the blood of Jesus. Father, have your way for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. It would be a question I would pose to you as we dive into Luke chapter 16. What, what, what if we spent our lives climbing the ladder of success only to realize that it was leaned against the wrong building? We see that happening in our culture. People are so desperate and have these aspirations to become successful But for so many of them, the realization is, I'm climbing a ladder that is leaned against the wrong building. What if being consumed with earthly riches really left us broke and left us empty? What if that is the truth? In Luke chapter 16, Jesus shares with us two stories, and he makes two guarantees in this text. Two of the principle-centered things that Jesus makes in this story is this. You will give an account for your life one day and stand before a holy God. 
I will give an account for my life. The second truth that Jesus makes in Luke 16 is you will spend eternity somewhere. And it will either be in heaven or it will be in hell. Luke 16 verse 1, we read that Jesus told this story to his disciples. He says there was a rich man who had a manager handling his business affairs. One day a report came that the manager was wasting his money and possessions. When you pick up verse 2, even through 4, but really all the way down through verse 8, what you're going to read is Jesus says, then the owner, the rich man, looked at the manager and said, you're going to be fired. And so the manager at this time, knowing he's about to be fired, starts to do all kinds of maneuvering. I mean, there's self-deception, self-promotion. There's all this compromise stuff that you're going to read in this text. Verse 14, when we get there, it reads, the Pharisees who loved their money heard all this and they scoffed at Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What the world honors is detestable in the sight of God. Stop. Jesus is doing the teaching. His primary audience is the disciples. But who's listening in, again, is the religious people. And what are they doing? They're mocking Jesus. They're scoffing at Jesus. They're turning their nose up at Jesus and ridiculing Jesus. Now, the fundamental premise right out of the gate, again, that I would share with you, don't miss it, is Jesus is emphasizing you're, you're, you're accountable for how you're living your life. And you're going to give an account for the way that you've lived your life, which I would say you better pay attention to what you give your attention to, and you better pay attention to what you yield your heart to. And you better pay attention, as Jesus would emphasize, not to focus on outward appearance, but you better pay attention in such a way that you're focusing on your heart. Even in the Old Testament, we read that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Here's a premise statement for you. A faithful steward, this is a bad steward here, but a faithful steward and a faithful manager will use his master's resources to bring about glory to God and fulfill the purposes of God. So what does a faithful manager and a faithful steward do? They leverage the resources that they've been entrusted to bring about the purposes for the glory of God. Now, hold with me. Earthly riches. Earthly riches promise so much. And I think that's why they're enticing to so many people. They promise so much, but they offer so little. The pursuit of earthly wealth offers so little. They promise or arouse this false hope, but they ultimately deceive us and leave us empty. And what Jesus is going to teach in this area right here of this, this, this passage of text right here, what he's going to emphasize is that God owns it all. I will get there. Your responsibility is to steward and manage what belongs to God. He makes multiple contrasts here in this text. The first one he makes is be faithful to God, don't be unfaithful. Live a life of righteousness to God, don't be unrighteous. We pick it up in verse 10 where he says, he who is faithful 
in a very little thing will also be faithful when he's got much. He who is unrighteous with a very little thing will also be unrighteous when he has more. Again, if you're not faithful with a little, how can God entrust you with more? And if you've shown yourself to be unfaithful and unrighteous with whatever God's given you, why would he desire to give you more? Why would you give somebody something knowing that they were just going to squander it away? So the two crucial concepts right out of the gate are this. It's stewardship and it's accountability. Stewardship and accountability. Stewardship, again, means God owns it all. My responsibility is to manage what belongs to him. So when it comes to your life, my life, when it comes to our time, when it comes to any talents that we have, any wealth, any possessions, any money, even the relationships that, we involve, uh, that we're involved in, our responsibility is to manage those and steward them for the glory of God, realizing I'm going to give an account to God one day. Now, that being said, if you can own this as a fundamental foundational truth in your life, I'm telling you and live uh, from this, it will set you free. I exist to glorify God, period. That conversation comes up all the time. Why are you doing what you're doing? How did you get involved in this? How did you get involved in the wreckage of sin? Your reason for being on the planet is to glorify God. That's it. God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied with him. Am I ultimately satisfied with the Lord? So when it comes to uh, the things that you look at, you don't own your money, God does. You don't own your house, God does. You don't own your car, God does. You don't own your life, God does. The very breath that we have is a gift from God. So to ignore God's purposes and to assume that whatever I have is mine, that would be unfaithful stewardship. To assume that I exist for the glory of God and everything that God has entrusted to me, I'm to steward that for his honor, that would be faithful. Make sense? So stewardship out of the gate is you're going to give an account one day and then the accountability of it. The accountability of it is you're going to stand before God. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's appointed a man to die and then stand before the Lord. That's a given. Luke 16, 9, Jesus said, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others, to make friends, to be a blessing to others. Use whatever earthly, worldly resources you have to be a blessing to others. Then, then, when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. What is he saying? Earthly riches have an expiration date, and we should give and leverage all of the earthly resources that we have for the spreading of the gospel. Who? You. Who? Me. Who? You watching online. The teaching is whatever God has given us, leverage it, use it, bless others with it, don't hoard it, don't be a consumer, be a distributor. So I would ask the question, am I managing the resources that God has entrusted to me knowing that I'm going to give an account one day? Am I living to glorify God and am I personally involved in investing in the spreading of the gospel? Faithful stewardship coupled with accountability will allow us to 
focus our attention and our affection on the gospel. What are we to be about? The spreading of the gospel, the making of disciples, making Jesus famous. What is the principle throughout the pages of scripture? Store up your treasures in heaven where man cannot touch them, moth and rust will not destroy them. Throughout the pages of scripture, you and I are told, store your treasures in heaven. 100% guarantee I'll make to you. 100% guarantee is all of the money that you will accumulate ever in your lifetime on earth will be left to somebody else and eventually lost. Well, thanks for the encouragement. A 100% guarantee is that every dime, dollar, whatever that you accumulate eventually is going to be left and lost. But the treasures that you store in heaven will never be lost. So Jesus looks and says, hey, hey, make sure you're storing your wealth, your money, what you value, make sure you're storing it in the right place. Let me make a radical statement to you. This will rock some of you, but I like doing this kind of stuff anyway. Here's a radical statement to you. The concept in teaching, even amongst church people, the concept in teaching that 10% belongs to God and the other 90% is yours, is not biblical. It's not even biblical. 100% belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's. That, 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 that's right. Your life belongs to the Lord. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. One day God is going to say, give me back my breath. Everything that we have belongs to the Lord. Now, here's statistics will show you this, all right? The more money people make, the less percentage they give. Do you know that? The more money they start to make, when you make a dollar and you go, hey, man, you got a tithe off of it, you need to tithe off of it to honor God, uh, you make 10, it's easy to give a dollar. You start making a million, it's a lot harder to want to give a honey, thousand, unto the things of God. Make 10 million, the challenge to give a million, because we start to acquire and obtain and we start to live in, come on, my girl's smiling at me, and people start to live with this obsession for more stuff. Under the law, 10% uh, 10 was required. Under grace, we're inspired to do what the law never could make us do. Under the law, you're required to do this tithe. Under grace, we're inspired to live lives of radical generosity. Thomas Adams made this statement. He said, to give what we cannot keep, that we might get what we cannot lose. That's a great bargain. Wealth can do us no good unless it helps us toward heaven. To try to hold on to what you can't keep, what good is it? To give what you will never lose if you're investing in the things of God. He's like, what a great bargain. So everything, like when we start to store our treasures in heaven and we're investing in people's lives and investing in missional work and investing in making disciples, can I tell you something? We're investing in that which God cares about that has no expiration date to it. Then Jesus challenges the people with a statement. Basically, he says, you need to choose 
your master carefully. It's either going to be God or money. You're either going to live for the temporal or you're going to live for the eternal. And the thing that we teach here at the Cross Loganville is live with eternity as the backdrop. You're either going to live for the now or you're going to live with eternity in mind. So you've got to ask the question, who is my master? No one, verse 13, can serve two, two masters. No one can do it. You'll hate the one, love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You're not going to serve God and money. You can't do it. Here's the question. Am I willing to give up earthly riches that I'm going to lose anyway and invest in God's kingdom that I will never lose? Am I willing to step into God's agenda, teachings, and principles, or am I still going to keep living for myself? Now, the truth is, you're going to give an account for your life one day. So am I. Does that motivate me? It does motivate me. I'm going to stand before a holy God and give an account one day. Does that matter? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it matters. It, it matters a lot. Then I'm going to spend eternity somewhere, either heaven or in hell. Jesus then contrasts the life of two men. He contrasts the life of a rich man and then a poor man by the name of Lazarus. Verse 19, Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple, fine linen. He lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there, he was longing even for the scraps and crumbs from the rich man's table. The dogs would come and lick his open sores. Pretty heavy story right out of the gate. So you've got this contrast here. Let me say this to you. Life is not fair. It's not fair. As we look around us, it's not a level playing field. As I sit there and contemplate even life, I'm like, some people are born into the world with strong bodies. And some are born with weaker bodies. I look at Benji even out of my own family. Came into the world with a strong body. Yeah, he's got some allergies with certain things, but he's got a strong body. Then I look at my last little dude, Caleb, and he's got cystic fibrosis. He battles arthritis. He just turned 19 years old, and I look at this strong body that can go out and run marathons and do all this CrossFit stuff like Benji does, and I look at this little dude who struggles. He gets on the scale one night, and he said, come and look. I said, what do you got? He said, I weigh 170 pounds. Gets up the next morning. He goes, come and look. He said, 161 pounds. I'm like, how can you lose nine pounds? But his body is having to fight so hard to breathe with his lung condition and with things going on that I look and I go, it's not a level playing field. It's not level. Some people have strong bodies. Some don't. Some people are intellectual, like Rick. <laughs> and some people are like me. They're in the third of the class that makes the upper two-thirds possible. There they go. Some people are handsome, like me. <laughs> and some are not, 
like Dustin. <laughs> it's a genetic thing, and I'm sure that requires an intellectual answer, Dustin, so get with Rick. <laughs> but the reality is some people are born into the world into wealth, and some people are born into the world broke. Some people are born into the world where there's clothes and there's cars and there's food and there's money, and you didn't do anything to stand in line for that family some are born into the world with families, and these kids are struggling right out of the gate. Some kids, man, they have both parents, and they're being brought up in the faith. Some kids are abandoned and rejected. The playing field is not level. Even when you look at the contrast of these two men here, I can tell you there's differences. Back to the text, when you look at their two lives, the rich man was wealthy. Lazarus was poor. The rich man had the latest, greatest fashion, styling and profiling with whatever Lululemon was coming out with. <laughs> Lazarus was clothed in rags. Rich man had plenty to eat. Lazarus was begging for crumbs. Rich man lived in luxury. Lazarus was covered in sores and slept with the dogs. Look at the contrast. Look at their lives. Level playing field? No. Different narratives? Yes. Then you look at the contrast, not only, Robert, of their lives, but you look at the contrast of their deaths. It says in verse 22, finally, the poor man died. He was carried away by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died. He was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. And there in torment, he saw Abraham, who is the father of faith and father of the faithful, in a far distance with Lazarus and his side. Look at the contrast here. And here's what I would say to you. One thing you can say about a rich man and one thing you can say about a poor man is they're both going to die. We're going to die. The scripture says the poor man died. It doesn't mention burial. It doesn't mention funeral. And for many in that day that were living in poverty and the ruins when they died, they would take their body and throw it out into this waste dump dead. Throw him in the dump pile. The rich man was buried. Probably had a cool funeral. His rich buddies probably showed up and was talking about what a successful man that he was. But nothing they said could alter the reality of where his destiny was. Good dude right here made the money. Bam! Nothing they said could change his destiny. The rich man was already in hell before the funeral home ever received a phone call. Bam, that quick. That quick. When you contrast their lives and you contrast their death, it's like, so it can happen that quick. That, that, that quick. That quick. He, he, he just goes into the restroom and a few minutes later, I go in to check on Andy and he's that quick. I was talking to him a few minutes ago, and now he's, he's in eternity. And praise God, Andy had faith in Christ. But it happens that quick, that quick. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that quick. Stop. Are you ready to meet the Lord? Are you ready? If you were to die today, are you ready to meet the Lord? One of the things that motivated me 
back in my drunken stupor days was that I had this incredible fear that if I died partying like a rock star and drinking like a guppy and doing the things I was doing, I had this fear, you will die and bust hell wide open. Did I fear that? Yes, I did. Did I believe that that was a great possibility? I'm like, I, I, I did. And so when you look, are you prepared? I, I, I'm like, God, I'm not prepared. Then you contrast their eternity. Your soul will spend eternity somewhere, heaven or hell. It's a given. Jesus talks about these two men after their death. Don't, don't miss it. In New Testament times, a chief place of honor at a feast was when you would come in and you would lay your head next to the chest or the bosom or by the side of the one who had invited you. That was the, that was the chief place of honor. And Jesus is basically saying, uh, this poor man, Lazarus, who had been feeding on crumbs, He's now in an honored place in heaven beside Abraham, the father of faith, for all eternity. Look, look, look at him where he's at. Steve, verse 23, the rich man died, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and he saw Lazarus by his side. You've got one man in heaven, one man in hell. You've got one man feasting and another one on fire. You, don't, you only have two options, and it's what you do with Christ is going to determine where we spend our eternity. So here's a fundamental question. Do you personally believe in hell? Christianity Today recently did a survey, and 62% of Americans were like, uh, I don't know if I believe in hell. 62%. I'm like, really? But Jesus taught about hell. In the New Testament, there's over 100 verses that warn the lost sinner of his fate if he doesn't repent and come to Christ. Over 40 verses, Jesus spoke about the reality of hell and eternity. So if a person says, I don't believe in hell, you've got an issue with Jesus, who is God in flesh. The same Bible that talks about heaven talks about hell and we cannot eliminate the thought of hell just because it makes us feel uncomfortable. We cannot eliminate the reality of hell. I don't want to talk about that. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Well, if you see this text continue to unfold, you would go, sure it does. The, re the reality of hell and the thought of hell made me feel uncomfortable. It's like, yeah, it should. And we should never deny hell. We should weep over the fact that there is a hell. I'll unpackage this. There is. Jesus taught it. C.S. Lewis said, I have met no people, no people, who fully disbelieved in hell that also had a life-giving belief in heaven. The biblical teaching on both destinations stands or falls together. If the one is real, so is the other. If the one is a myth, so is the other. He goes on to say, the best reason for believing in hell is that Jesus said it exists. Do you believe it? I do. Jesus taught about hell. And then the very death of Christ on the cross proves that there's a hell. Think about it. If there's no hell, then why would Jesus ever die? 
Did Jesus die to save us from a non-existent destiny? That would make no sense, even from a logical standpoint. So you're going to die a criminal's death to save us from a non-existent destiny? If there's no hell, the cross was a waste. But the cross is the most powerful statement known to humanity. It's God making him who knew no sin to become sin so that you and I can become the righteousness of God. The truth is Jesus died to offer hope and salvation and forgiveness. And he pays the penalty of sin and deals with the consequences of sin so that you and I don't have to endure the wrath of God. You believe that? I do. I do. The justice of God demands that there be a hell. Randy Alcorn makes this statement. Guilty people will always rationalize and justify sin. Hell exists because sin has no excuse. Hell is not evil, but it's a place where evil gets punished. Hell is not pleasant, appealing, or encouraging, but hell Listen to what Alcorn said, is morally good because a good God must punish evil. Fallen angels, Lucifer, Satan, people that have rejected God's gift of redemption in Christ will inhabit hell. I told you, Jesus pulls the throttle back and he starts getting so like urgent in his message right here. At the end, he's about to go to Jerusalem. He's about to go to the cross. And he's telling people, be ready, be prepared. There is a hell, Jesus taught it. His death proves it. And reality is, reality is, the justice of God demands there's got to be a place to deal with evil. Then, back to the question, what will hell be like? Well, undoubtedly, to my generation, ACDC lied to us, Jeffrey, when they said, hell ain't no bad place to be. No, it's it's a terrible place to be. When you start to study it, there will be physical misery in hell. Verse 24, seeing Lazarus at Abraham's bosom by his side, the rich man cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. What are you saying? The physical, uh, the physical misery is that even when you get a person who rejects Christ, when a person gets to hell, they got all their senses. When we get to heaven, we'll have all our senses. The ability to taste and feel and everything that comes with it. This guy has got his senses in hell. And he's not experiencing just some momentary torture. He's in torment, physical misery and torment forever. And the sad thing is, what he's experiencing was self-inflicted. You refused. You've heard the gospel. You've refused it. And the crazy thing is, even if you pay attention to the text, is this. The rich man in hell cries out for the cheapest supply that the earth has to offer. Water. The cheapest thing that the earth has to offer. What is it? Water. Two-thirds of the earth. 
this water. Could you send Lazarus just to, to dip his finger down in the water and come touch my tongue? I'm in torment. The physical misery is real. It's real. Hell is a place of emotional misery. Abraham said to the rich man, Abraham said to the rich man, son, remember that in your lifetime you received all these good things? And likewise, Lazarus had all this evil and pain going on in his life. He's now being comforted. You are tormented. You're saying you'll have a memory in hell? You'll, you'll have a memory in hell. Will you remember every lie, every compromise, every sin? Will you remember in hell? Based on what Jesus is teaching, you'll remember in hell. Will you remember every time some family member and loved one invited you? To come to church every time someone invited you, hey, would you please today place your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord? You'll have that memory. Every time you heard the gospel and chose to live a life of pleasure instead of for God's purpose, you'll remember it. You believe that? I do. Hell is a place of unending regrets. It's also a place of deep spiritual misery. The rich man pleaded for his family. He pleaded for his loved ones. Man, there's still a few back that have a choice. He's pleading for them in verse 27. Oh, I beg you, Father Abraham, I'm begging you. Would you send Lazarus to my father's house? Man, I've got five brothers. Would you send him there that he might testify to them? Lest they come to this place of torment? God, would you please send somebody to talk to them? Abraham said to him, they have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them hear them. No, 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 Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through the one who would rise from the dead. What is Jesus saying? I'm going to rise from the dead. I am going to die a criminal's death. I am going to become propitiation, the atoning sacrifice of God once and for all. And some of y'all are still going to look at me and reject that I am Messiah. You're going to look and go, no, no, no. And, and the sad thing is this. A person who refuses to walk with Christ and a person who refuses to live a life of sin when that person dies and goes to hell, the sad thing is most people do not go to hell by themselves. They take family members and brothers and sisters and children and other people with them. I've seen that in families where a person refuses to come to Christ and they're leading their family toward hell. Most people don't go by themselves. Is this heavy? I'm telling you this is sobering, and we should all, including me, I had to contemplate this word so much over the last few weeks in studying it. I'm like, Lord, this is one of the heaviest things that you taught. This is one of the heaviest things that you disclosed to the people, and you're emphasizing to, this, to these Pharisees, I'm going to rise from the dead. Remember when Jesus said, many on that day will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not we attended church, and we gave a couple of dollars here and there, and we did some cool things, and he would say, depart. 
You don't know me, and I, I don't know you. You never surrendered to me. You never abided with me. You never kept my commandments. You didn't walk with me. You professed me occasionally, but you never allowed me to possess you continually. And I think that's the bondage for so many people. I will profess him when it's convenient, but I don't want him possessing me and running my life. I'm going to keep calling the shots. That's not knowing the Lord. That's not the gospel according to Jesus. Then we read, John Mark, there's eternal misery. There's emotional, there's physical, there's all this misery, spiritual, then eternal misery. Verse 26, Abraham told the rich man, between us and you, there's this great gulf fixed. Those who want to pass from here to you, they can't. And those who want to pass from where you're at over here, they, 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 they can't. And some people hold to the idea, and even certain religions out there believe that when you die, you can go to this holding pattern. Maybe you can be in this place for a period of time, maybe called purgatory. And maybe you've got some other people that can give enough money to pay you out. It's a lie from hell. Based on how broke my family is, I'm glad it's a lie from hell. Because if I would have died, it was like, dude, you stuck like Chuck, man. Reality is there is no second chance after death. It's like you want mercy and forgiveness. You got to receive them now. The man in hell is crying out for mercy in his misery. And when you read these words, being far away, desperately alone, unable to escape, tormented, where are you at with your walk? Are you trying to scare the hell out of people? No. I'm trying to introduce you to the reality of hell and to say that there is a way to escape. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end is death. There is a Savior that willfully died a criminal's death to atone for our sin, that he's come that we might have life, not only eternal life, but abundant life now. Do I believe it? Yes. Is there a person I've ever met that I want to see die and go to hell? No. What about the person that divorced you and betrayed you and hurt you? There's nothing inside of you. If you understand the reality and the depth and the disaster of hell that you would look and go, go to hell. You would never want that. Never. Never. That should be a phrase totally eliminated from the vocabulary of anyone that's even ever flirted with Jesus. Most lust. Have faith in Christ. I don't want you to miss it. I don't want to see you in that state forever. Hell is brutal. It's eternal torment. Close you with some thoughts here. Matthew 8 says, it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Grinding, weeping. Mark chapter 3 and 9 says, it's a place of eternal damnation and unquenchable fire. Revelation says it's a place of darkness where the wrath of God is being poured out. 2 Thessalonians 1 says it's a place of everlasting destruction. So here, here, here it is. Reality is Jesus is pulling back the throttle saying, all right, guys, 
I don't have much time. The urgency is before us. And as we dive into this chapter, am I ready to stand before the Lord and give an account for my life? And do I have assurance of where I'm going to spend my eternity? I will spend eternity somewhere. Am I ready? And here's what we've got to understand, and I close you with this. God is so rich in his mercy. God is so rich in his mercy that he would rather endure the wrath and scorn and shame of the cross than for any of us to die with no hope. God being rich in mercy would rather endure the wrath and judgment than to see any one of us, Michael, die with no hope, no salvation, no forgiveness. I'm willing to endure it. For the joy set before him, Hebrews 12 says, he endured the shame of the cross. What was the joy? To rescue and redeem, to be obedient to the Father, but to say this is going to offer redemption. Reality is, apart from Christ, we would all bust hell wide open. Jesus paid a horrible price on the cross so that we could experience life and experience it to the full. If you know me, you'll hear me, listen to me, you'll keep my commands, and you'll do what I say. When we pause, here's our conclusion. What amazing love. What amazing grace. What amazing kindness that God would dump out on us. What a God. God, thank you. Thank you that you would endure what you went through. Jesus, thank you. So that I would no longer live for myself, but unto you who is worthy.